is 1 Thessalonians 3, 11 through 13. So please turn with me there. Now may, God our, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. I like to think of myself as a fan of good music. So when a, a good song comes on the radio, I like to sing along if I can, if it's pleasant or catchy. But one thing I'm not so great at is knowing who it is who's singing or playing. So I can recognize a melody, even lyrics sometimes, I can sing along, but if you ask me who's singing the song, who's the artist, I'm usually stumped. I, I just don't know. And that really bugs me. Uh, because I think for all of us, when we see a great painting or hear a great song, when we learn of a record-breaking performance in sports, or we see a brand new car drive by, we appreciate that thing for what it is, of course. It's impressive. But the question that almost immediately pops up in our minds is, who made that? Who's responsible for that? Who sang that? I must know who to praise. I need to follow their music. Now, the Mona Lisa is tremendous, but Leonardo da Vinci? He's the praiseworthy painter, right? Hello is a terrific song, but Adele's the one who sang it. Am I a little behind the times there? I don't know. This is the last, like, hot hit song that I liked. Um, 22 straight wins in the American League is quite the feat, but the fact that the Cleveland Indians did it, that means something more. Well, as we've studied through the first three chapters of 1 Thessalonians, we've seen good things happening in that church. They've received the word of God. They've endured suffering for their faith. They proclaimed the gospel to others. They've grown in hope and love. But who gets the credit for that, for this amazing fruit born in the hearts of new Christians at Thessalonica? Who's done it? Who's made it happen? On these verses that Corey just read for us at the end of chapter 3, we see Paul praying that the Lord would continue to grow the church. Paul has been thanking God, really, for the entire, entirety of the first three chapters of this letter, and here he wraps up all that thanksgiving with a prayer that God would be the one who would keep on doing the good work he'd begun. And specifically, we see in those three brief verses three things Paul prays for God to do. So first, in verse 11, he prays that the Lord would direct his way. And then in verse 12, he prays that the Lord would increase the church's love. And finally, in verse 13, he prays that the Lord would establish their hearts. So those are our three points this morning. How does Paul want the Lord to be at work in Thessalonica? First, by directing his way. Second, by increasing their love. And third, by establishing their hearts. So first, directing his way. So if you look back over the course of chapter 3, Paul has heard word back from Thessalonica through Timothy. And what he's heard has just made him overflow with joy. We saw that last time. The Thessalonians are persevering in their faith. Even though Paul had had to leave them so abruptly, he learns that they're still after Jesus. They're wanting to know him. And in verse 10 there, in chapter 3, we see that he just really wants to go back and visit them. 
Why? To supply what is lacking in their faith. So in other words, Paul had begun the good work of teaching them, but he knows they just need more training. They need to be grounded and rooted deep in their faith in Christ, especially with persecution knocking at the door. And that's one of the reasons he'd sent Timothy to them. Look back in verse 2. Timothy was there to establish their faith. And so here in his prayer to God, Paul asks that the Lord would direct him back to them so he could continue the good work, so he could teach them. And remember back at the end of chapter 2, this wasn't an easy task for Paul to make his way back to them. Uh, So no matter how much he wanted to get back to Thessalonica, remember what he'd said. Satan was hindering him from doing so. If you were here when we looked at the end of chapter 2 a few weeks ago, you'll remember we spent time talking about how Satan is a very real enemy to, his, to God's church. In fact, he, he hates the church. He hates Loudoun Valley Baptist Church. And so when it came to the brand new Thessalonian church, Satan knew, well, at least he thought he knew, exactly how to stunt their spiritual growth. He would just make it hard for Paul to get back to them. They'd be left without a teacher. Remember that word for hinder in chapter 2, verse 18, had the military idea of a, an army wrecking up a road as they passed by it, plowing it up so their enemy couldn't follow them. Paul was up against a fierce enemy. And so he prays. If anyone could enable Paul to make it back to Thessalonica, it would have to be God. It had been God, after all, who had saved the Thessalonians in the first place. He had revealed himself to them through the work of the Apostle Paul. So only he could get Paul back to nurture them in their faith. So Paul doesn't freak out about Satan's opposition. He just gives it to the Lord. He trusts God to intervene, to make a way so he could get back to Thessalonica. I think we would do well here, church family, to be reminded for ourselves that just as the Lord would be the one to direct Paul's way, so he directs our ways. We're reminded here that God is completely sovereign. His plans must be carried out. He's the one Paul has been thanking throughout this entire letter because he's the one who's been at work, saving, guiding. Paul had merely been the instrument And think about what Paul has seen on this current missionary journey he's on. He's seen God bust open a jail cell in an earthquake in Philippi. He's seen him spare Paul persecution, further persecution in both Thessalonica and Berea. He's protected him. He's delivered him. And so the more Paul sees about this God, the more it's just obvious that Satan's no match for him. The sovereign God is the one who determines every step. So, church, do you see how the character of God motivates Paul to pray? Paul's anxious desire to get back to the Thessalonians just drives him not to despair, but to prayer. God is the one who will direct his way. I wonder if you need motivation to pray this morning. If you found it difficult to turn to God in prayer this past week. Well, here's motivation aplenty. Reflect on this. God is the one who directs your way. He is completely in command over every single thing that happens in your life. It's not your phone, your boss, your calendar, your kids. God determines your path. 
So doesn't it make all the sense in the world to go to him in prayer? The book of Proverbs speaks about this a lot. One of the verses that it talks about this says, Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. We're so good at making plans, aren't we? I'm making plans for the future, making plans for our kids and their futures, making plans for who we'll marry, what our career trajectory will look like, what this church will look like in five years, what our weekend schedule will look like, even what this Sunday afternoon and lunch will look like. And there's nothing wrong with that. But Christian, plan and then commit those plans to the Lord. Don't forget that he is the one whose purpose will stand, not yours. You will spare yourself much anxiety and discouragement if you go to him in prayer, holding your plans loosely and trusting him completely. He's our, as Paul puts it there, our father. He will never give us what is bad for us. We must trust him. And to encourage you all, I've seen this at work in our church just recently. So I've seen some of you suffer unexpected trials in your lives. You've been hurt, but you've responded with heartfelt trust in the Lord. Sure, you wouldn't have planned your life this way, but you know God is your father and you can trust him. Church, whatever area of your life makes you feel lost right now, pray. Pray to the one whose GPS will never need to recalculate. Pray to the one whose plan can never be thwarted. You know what's really encouraging? This afternoon, you can go back to, you can go ahead to Acts chapter 20, the first four verses, and you'll see that by God's grace, Paul did eventually make it back to Thessalonica. And he came back and he ministered to them. He even took people from the church to travel with him. He had asked the Lord to direct his steps, and the Lord had seen fit to answer his prayer. We can trust God. So that's what Paul prays for first, that the Lord would direct his steps. The second thing Paul prays for is there in verse 12. He prays that the Lord would increase the Thessalonians' love. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So Paul will bring this up again and again, especially in chapter 4, about loving in, in abounding ways. But here notice that he prays that their love would be first for those in the church and then for those outside the church. Now, he could mean by that other Christians in the region, uh, but I think he's probably meaning the, the unbelievers on the outside of the church as a whole, even those who might persecute Paul for his faith. The church's love must be a love that resounds, that spreads out like sound waves into the lives of those around it. And you can see there, Paul mentions that they should know what this kind of love looks like because they've seen it in him. And he's seen it in Christ. Other places, Paul will say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul has seen the love of Christ. He's modeled it to the church, and now he calls on the church to model it to one another. And you know what? I'm struck here by how Paul wants to build this church. So he's on a mission here to establish this church. And you'd think he would want to instruct them in some, in, in some fundamental doctrine, right? Which he will in the coming chapters. You'd think he'd maybe just start instructing them about how they should live in, in kind of rules of Christianity, which in some ways he will talk about in chapter four. 
But first of all, here, he prays that their love would increase and abound. It would overflow. See, love in the church is necessary to growth in the church. Aaron read uh, for us earlier in 1 John, where, where the Apostle John puts it with no ambiguity. He says, if we say all the right things about what we believe, if we say all the right things about how we should live, and yet we don't love each other, we are liars. Those who have been loved by Christ will love each other. We've read it and sang about it this morning, but this is a nature of who we are as Christians. We are beloved. We are the loved ones. We are those who proclaim that it's by this we know love. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So let's just take a second and marvel at God's love, family. What wondrous love is this? Jesus the blameless, holy, majestic Son of God, seated in heaven, enjoying for eternity all the pleasures of the Godhead, Jesus, the beautiful one, the King of all ages, leaving his throne, being sent by God to a world that despised him. The ultimate prince-to-pauper story. Jesus gave up his riches. He emptied himself of his rights and he came to us, to us. Those who rejected him. And this is love that's too great to imagine. We would never do something like this for our enemies. But Jesus did it for us. And that's the gospel, friends. This is the great news that we were once sinners against God, every single one of us. But God loved us enough to send Jesus to die in our place. Our sin deserved God's judgment, but Jesus took that judgment for us. Every single sin of those who would trust in him was placed on his shoulders. Jesus was blamed and credited for every lustful thought, every angry word, every lazy moment, every complaining conversation, every secret sin, every hate-filled daydream, every single sin you'll ever commit and you ever have committed, Christian. Jesus died for those things. God killed him instead of you. And then God raised him up to prove that his punishment had been carried out in full. Jesus came out the victor from the grave. Sin had been dealt with and therefore death had lost. We can go free. We can be his children, not his enemies. If you're here and you're not a Christian, this offers for you just as much as it has been for us. If you will repent of your sin and turn in faith to Christ and see all of your sin placed on his cross, you will be saved. And church, that love, that love when it takes hold of our hearts will never be able to cohabitate with a heart that doesn't love others we really understand the lengths to which God went to love us, we will not be able to withhold love from one another. This is part of the new life that the Lord Jesus has worked in our souls by his spirit. 
And so it makes sense that when Paul looks for evidence and growth in the new church at Thessalonica, he prays that he would see increasing love because that will be a proof that they know Jesus. A love that starts in the church and then ricochets outward to the community around it. And one of the things that I'm praying for us and Brad is praying for us and I encourage you to pray for us as well as a church as we go into year two is that we would be more effective in evangelism. So we have this message of good news, this evangel, and we need to tell it to others. And so good questions to ask in light of that is how? How can we do that better? How can we be better evangelists? Well, church, here's a simple way to start. Love one another. Listen to Jesus' words in John chapter 13 as he speaks to his disciples. He says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Family, a big part of our witness to the world about who Jesus is will be in how we love each other. Jesus tells us that people will be drawn to him by seeing our love. I think that ups the ante a little bit, doesn't it, for us? I, mean, I think this shows us that there's more at stake in how we love each other than just happy feelings in our own little community of Christians. And when we love each other, we're holding up big foam fingers. You watch college football yesterday, you would see some of those. As we love each other, we hold up big foam fingers that say, we're doing this because Jesus has loved us. We're waving huge banners that proclaim this is what the gospel looks like. This is the community it creates and the sinners it redeems. We love each other. And now, brothers and sisters, before you head off on that on-ramp to the guilt trip turnpike, sighing that you just, you, know, you just don't have this love for others enough, let me remind you that Paul is praying that the Lord would do this. Not that you would manufacture it on your own, but that the Lord would do it. The amazing thing, church, is that as you become more and more like Jesus, as you saturate yourself in his word and in the truth of the gospel, it will be impossible for him to not effect more love in your heart. That's the work of the Lord. So ask him to do it. Be encouraged. You can give of yourself to your brothers and sisters. You can help the hurting. You can encourage the weak. You can be patient with the stubborn. All things that, that Paul recommends here in 1 Thessalonians to show love. And you can do that because God's working in you. I mean, he was patient with you, wasn't he? He gave himself for you, didn't he? If he did that, he can surely do it through you. I think we can often talk about love within the church and make it sound sort of complicated and convoluted. And it will be messy for sure because we're sinners, but it's not rocket science. Just look at how Jesus has loved you and then love each other. All right, so Paul has asked the Lord to direct his way. He's asked him to increase the Thessalonians in their love. Finally, in verse 13, Paul asks the Lord to establish their hearts. He says there, he prays, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. 
So Paul wants to establish the Thessalonian church, but he recognizes ultimately it will have to be God who does that. Timothy did some to establish their faith back in verse 2, but Paul prays about it. He's recognizing that he could go back, that Timothy could go, but it will ultimately be God who must establish them in their faith. And this is Paul's great desire for these new Christians. He wants them to be holy and to be ready for Christ's return because of that. He wants their spiritual muscles to be flexed and exercised. He wants their faith to be strengthened and bolstered. That word that he prays for them, blameless there, could mean the kind of the perfection that we'll experience as Christians when Jesus comes back. Um, being covered by his blood and acceptable to him. But I think it, it means more that Paul's praying for this church to be characterized by continued growth in Christ-likeness. That holiness would be a trademark of their congregation. Of course, sin would continue to penetrate their hearts, but he prays that they would persevere in faith, not living at peace with their sin, but waging war against it. And he believes, he knows that this holiness being worked in them, becoming characteristic of them, will prepare them for the coming of King Jesus. Elsewhere in his letters, Paul tightly connects these two realities, holiness and preparedness. Holy living, becoming more like Jesus, and being ready for him. Church family, without holiness, we won't see God. That's why Paul will go on in chapters 4 and 5 to get more practical about the way that our new hearts will work themselves out. Next week, especially in, in the area of sexual purity. How should our lives look like as those who have been bought by Christ? It matters how we live. Of course, we're not saved by our good deeds. That's never true. That's anti-gospel. But good deeds, lives lived for Christ out of the Spirit's work in us is necessary after our conversion to prove that there has been a change in our hearts that we've been made new in Christ. Without that holiness, without that separation from sin growing in our hearts, we will not see God. Holiness is a must for those who are growing in grace. So church, how can we be holier this week? I think it's interesting how Paul goes directly from praying for God to increase love to praying for God to increase holiness. I mean, he connects love and holiness. He prays that God would increase the Thessalonians' love so that, purpose statement, so that they might be established in holiness. So how can we grow in holiness? How can you grow in holiness as a member of this church? Try loving other people in the church. How can you prepare for Jesus' return? Try loving other people in the church. You will find that endeavoring to love others well, without exception, this is the rule, it will make you more holy. I guarantee it. I mean, have you gotten to know one another yet? 
You're going to become more holy as you bear with one another in love, as you see how your sin affects those around you. And there's so much encouragement in that. God doesn't call us to love each other because it's easy, but so that we might be ready for him, becoming more like him. Why do we think we will enjoy heaven forever if we don't enjoy the love of Christ here? And remember, a, a day is coming when that sinner who annoys you, sitting next to you, will join you as a saint, as someone not able to sin anymore, someone not able to irritate you anymore, someone not able to condemn you for your sin anymore. Christian, that's your future. That's the future of your brothers and sisters at this church. We will be saved forever together in the kingdom of our God. Our faith, our eternity is a together faith, a together eternity. And so as we love each other now, as hard as that gets, we're preparing for the day when Jesus comes back. We're linking arms, lest any one of us fall away before he returns. This past week, I had a uh, a coffee with a member of our church and he asked me how I thought Loudon Valley was doing after year one. And I got to thinking after that and to be honest, I mean, I've gotten to know myself more over this year and I've gotten to some of, know some of you more. And so after a year, I see even more clearly how messed up we are as a church. And you know what? That's super encouraging to me as your pastor. Because as long as this family seeks to grow in love and holiness, as long as we seek to reveal our faults and flaws and then cast them together at the foot of the cross, we're getting ready for heaven. We're going to be well prepared for when Jesus comes back. But the more we stifle those things and hold each other, ba hold each other back and nurse sin in our hearts, the least prepared we will be for when he comes back. That's why we gather, church, lest any one of us be, be sort of uh, taken away by the deceitfulness of sin. So let's do this. This is what we're called to, church. Let's love each other. Let's let our sins bubble up to the surface, and then let's forgive each other and cling to the cross together so that when Jesus comes back, we'll be holy. We'll be ready. Let's pray that the day would come soon. Let's pray. God, your gospel compels us to give ourselves away to you in love for one another and holiness in how we live before you. Spirit, we can't do this without you. Everything in us that loves Jesus is because you have worked it in us. And so, Spirit, come to Loudoun Valley Baptist Church and work in our family to grow us in grace. We give ourselves to you. We give ourselves, Jesus, to your kingdom. And we pray that you would come and take us to yourself. And that in the meantime, you would grow us. That you would make us more like you. And now as we finish by singing and contemplating the love of the cross, we pray, Lord, that we would respond in giving ourselves away to you. Come again soon, Lord Jesus. Amen.